Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. And you know, let me say on behalf of, of my staff and myself how grateful we are for your uh, kind words and, and your appreciation that you have expressed to us this morning. And, and not just today and not just in the month of October, but consistently throughout the year. I'm very grateful and I, I'm very humbled to uh, be able to, to stand in this pulpit week after week after week and to be able to minister to you fine people here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. It truly is a joy uh, for me, and I know that I can say the same thing on behalf of the staff that serve alongside me. And I can also say this, that there is no place I'd rather be and there's no church I'd rather be in and there's no group of people that I would rather be ministering to than you fine folks here at Ivy Creek. So thank you very much. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and just flop them open to the middle? We're going to the book of Psalms today, and find your way to Psalm 120, 120th Psalm. Today we're going to begin a new sermon series. Many of you have been asking, where are we going next? What are we going to do next? Well, you get to find out today. We're going to be looking at a new series uh, this morning. Over the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at a group, a specific grouping of Psalms that finds its way there in the fifth book of the Psalter towards the end that work from one, Psalm 120 all the way through Psalm 134 that is uh, known as the Psalms of the Ascent. It is a group of Psalms that Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser has said this about it, said it is a small hymnal within the larger one. We know that the Psalter, the book of Psalms, really were, were songs. They were songs that were, were written in order to be sung, oftentimes as prayers to God, sometimes as praise songs about God, and sometimes as praise songs to God. They are the, the, the hymnal of the people of Israel. Well, within this larger group of 150 psalms, you find these 15 that have this ascription attached to them, named the Psalms of the Ascent. Now, when we begin to look at them, these ascriptions tell us different things. They tell us, you know, who wrote them. Some, we'll find that some of these psalms are written by King David. One was attributed to King Solomon. The others are anonymous, though some would say that they were written by King Hezekiah when he was alive. The truth is, as a matter of, we're not, we're not sure about that. What we do know is this, is that that tells us that these psalms, when they were written, were written by various people at various times who were facing various circumstances. They were not all written at the same time by the same person. But at some point later in time, after they had been written, and, and after they had been being sung, these psalms were compiled together and given this ascription, naming, it, naming them the psalms of the ascent. And the question then begs to be asked, then what, what does that mean? Well, what does the psalms of the ascent mean? Why does that have any, why, why, does that, why do we care about that? Well, in some of your Bibles, you might even see the ascription, the, song, the, the psalms of the degrees, which in some ways only adds a little more confusion to the question. The truth of the matter is, scholars are not 100% sure what this ascription, the Psalms of the Ascent, actually mean, particularly as how the, why they were grouped together. The most common interpretation, however, and the one to which I ascribe, is that these Psalms were ultimately assembled together into this smaller hymnal in order that they might be sung by Hebrew pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem to participate in the three annual Jewish feasts, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You see, three times a year, the Israelites 
living all over the kingdom of Judah, they would travel. They would make a pilgrimage from wherever they lived in Palestine up to Jerusalem, particularly to the temple. In the springtime, they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In, uh, in the early summer, they would go and celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And then in the fall, they would travel to Jerusalem, to, particularly to the temple, to the feast and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So three times a year, the children of Israel, the Hebrew children, they would pack up, they would join up with other pilgrims, and they would make their way up to Jerusalem. And the reason why I say that they made their way up to Jerusalem is because typically in the Scriptures, when the Bible refers to Jerusalem, and particularly to the holy hill where the temple was located, it does not talk about it geographically, it talks about it topographically. Jerusalem was the highest hill. It was, it was set in the highest part of the nation. And so no matter where you lived in the country, when you began to make your way to Jerusalem, you had to ascend up. You had to travel up to get to Jerusalem, particularly to the temple. And so consequently, that is why some believe and why I believe that these songs, these, these psalms of the ascent were, were given to these Hebrew children who traveled up to Jerusalem. Not only that, though, as Eugene Peterson has written, he says the ascent toward Jerusalem was not only literal, it was also a metaphor. The pilgrimage to Jerusalem acted out a life lived upward toward God, an existence that advanced from one level to another in developing maturity. You see, each of these pilgrimages was a journey that was designed to bring the children of Israel closer to God. They were designed to increase their awareness about God and God's claim upon their lives. And it was to increase their worship of Him and their devotion to Him. So three times a year, they would gather together, they would pack up their stuff, they would join up with others, and they would make their pilgrimage up to the temple in Jerusalem. And as they traveled, they would sing. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah even gave a group of those pilgrims this command as they were launching out and going on their way to, to, to engage in one of these, uh, one of these uh, pilgrimages. They, he said this in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 29, You shall have a song when a holy festival is kept, and gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come in to the mountain of the Lord. And so as they made their way to the temple, the pilgrims would sing. And the theory is, is that these 15 psalms were the songs that they would actually sing as they made their way up to Jerusalem. And eventually, these 15 psalms were compiled together into this mini-hymnal that would have then been passed on to future travelers for them to sing as they made their way up to Jerusalem, up to the mountain of God. Hence the name, the Psalms of the Ascent. Why this is important to you and me is because, as Eugene Peterson has written, the Hebrews singing these 15 psalms as they left their routines and made their way from towns and villages and farms and cities as pilgrims up to Jerusalem has created a picture that has become embedded in the Christian devotional imagination. It is our best background for understanding life as a faith journey. In other words, the pilgrimages of these ancient Hebrews going up to Jerusalem really serve as a metaphor for the journey that you and I are on as believers today. You see, we too are on our own pilgrimage. We too are on our journey toward a deeper and closer relationship 
with our Heavenly Father. We too travel a long way from the, very, from the long way from the very heart of God. We too are on a pilgrimage upward. We too are on an ascent. In fact, I really like the specificity with which one author describes this faith journey. He says, as disciples, we are pilgrims, not tourists. We are exiles and explorers, not day trippers and vacationers. We are working interns, not merely auditors of a course who are free to skip exams. Consequently, what we learn is that we are students who are responsible to put what we learn into practice. And that's very important for us to remember because as Stephen Uly has written in his commentary on these psalms, he says, our lives are fraught with joys and with sorrows, pleasant valleys and perilous mountains, encouraging gains and crippling losses, a journey marked by rejoicing, grieving, searching, wondering, and longing. What all that means is that as believers, though we are on our way, we are not yet home. There's still a new Jerusalem for which we long. There's still a lasting city whose builder and maker is God. There's still an eternal home in the heavens not made with human hands. There is still a home upon which our hope is set, and it is not here. And so just as those ancient pilgrims, they packed up, they joined up, and they made their way up to Jerusalem, all the while singing these psalms, which touch on such a broad range of human emotions such as distress, persecution, danger, expectation, uncertainty, excitement, peace, joy? Well then, we who experience all of those same emotions in our own faith journeys must recognize that as members of a church, we are part of a community. We are not a resort. We are a people who as a community together begin making our way on that road toward the very heart of God. So we join up with others. We link up with others in our family of faith just as those pilgrims did, and we sing right alongside our brothers and sisters just as they did, and we make our pilgrimage to the heart of God. Now, I believe that whoever it was who came along later and, and, and grouped all of these individual psalms together into this hymnal did so with an intent. Did it, they did so with an intent to illustrate for us really what life is like. You see, through, these, through our study of these psalms, we're going to hit peaks and valleys. We're going to hit straight roads and curved roads. We're going to hit joy and pain. All of those issues are there, and yet all along the way, what these psalms are going to point us to is a sovereign God that stands behind all of it, to whom we can look, in whom our hope can be placed. And so typically, as we study through these 15, we're going to take more than one a day, more than one at a time. But today, however, because of time and because the introduction was necessary, we're only going to look at the first one. We're going to look at Psalm 120. And let me just go ahead and forewarn you, this is a somber psalm. It is a song of one who is sickened and crippled by lies. Lies being told about him, lies being told to him. This, this mini-hymnal does not begin with a beautiful love song. As a matter of fact, I had this in my notes, but then I cut it, but now I put it back. I couldn't help this week as I was studying, thinking about this song, about a song that I used to hear on the country radio station when I was a kid. 
I asked Dave if he ever heard of it before, and he said he hadn't. He's not nearly as cultured as I am. The song was sung by B.J. Thomas when I was a kid. And it was this, somebody done somebody wrong song. Well, I want you to know Psalm 120 is a somebody done done somebody wrong song. That's what it is. It's a, it, it, it's a tough song to hear. When we read it, we're going to realize really quickly, this is a song that talks about distress. This is a song that talks about deceit. It's a song that talks about war. This is not a beautiful song. It's a discordant song. It's a dissonant song. Nevertheless, I believe that that's the way that these psalms ought to begin. It's an appropriate place to begin the psalms of the ascent. It's a song that describes where all disciples on the journey to the heart of God must begin. In a faraway land surrounded by faraway people living faraway lives. That's where Psalm 120 begins, so let's begin there and read with the writer this morning who tells us this under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 120, a plea for relief from bitter foes, a song of ascents. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kadar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for its truth and for how it speaks to us at the very moments of our lives when we may find ourselves feeling exactly the same way. Lord, You promised to us that Your Word will never return unto You void. So I pray that today our hearts will be open, that our minds will be open to the truth that is there, that we'll be able to push out all distractions that might be vying for attention in our lives this morning, but be able to focus on your holy word. And then, Father, we pray that you take that and that you use it for our good and for your glory. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The year was 1993. I was two years removed from a four-and-a-half-year stint in the United States Navy. I was in my early 20s. I was single. I wasn't rich by any stretch of the imagination, but I had landed a job that allowed and afforded me the opportunity to live out on my own. I owned a sports car and a pickup truck. I had a close set of friends that I used to hang out with. From all estimations, if you'd looked at me at that life, you'd say, well, you know, this guy's on his way. The only problem was I didn't know where I was on my way to. It wasn't exactly what you'd call aimless, it's just that I didn't know where to aim. I didn't have a direction in my life. I was sort of floating along, you might say, waiting for someone or something to come along and give me that direction that I really wanted and desired. What I remember about that point of my life was the narrative that I was listening to. It's a narrative that many of us have told to us over and over and over again. It comes from a thousand different directions in our lives from this world. It's a narrative that tells us how to live the good life now. 
It's the narrative that tells us that with a little more money, a little more time off, with a, a, a new and more exciting relationship, with a, with a newer or sportier car or pickup truck or some other kind of toy, that life will be better. That's the narrative that I was listening to. The problem was, here I was in my early 20s, and in many respects, all those things had really come true for me. You see, relative to what life had been like for me just a few years earlier, a sailor stationed on an island named Diego Garcia in the middle of the Persian Gulf, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, in the middle of the first Persian Gulf War, on an island so small and so remote that the only way to get around on that island, apart from government vehicles, was to ride a bicycle or walk on an island where during all hours of the day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you would be deafened by the sound of B-52 bombers taking off to fly their missions over Iraq. On an island in which we were so short-handed that we worked 12 hours on and 12 hours off, and if by chance one day you were given the day off by your supervisor, you came to the realization very quickly that you were on a remote island where there was nothing to do and no place to go. So compared to that life that I had been living just a few years prior, after having now moved back to my hometown in Gainesville, Georgia, and, 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 and experiencing more freedom and earning more money than I had ever earned before in my life, I was footloose and fancy free, and you would have expected all of that to have made me one really super happy person. But it wasn't. In fact, I became even more dissatisfied than I had been before. It was also at that same time that I had met a young lady that I was interested in. I thought things might go somewhere until I found out that she had started seeing one of my good friends behind my back. I had no idea. What I remember most about that incident was how hurt and betrayed I felt. Really wasn't sure that I could trust anyone anymore. Here I was in my early 20s, dissatisfied, disappointed, dejected, what I didn't know at the time, but what God was about to teach me was that the growing dissatisfaction and the distress that I was experiencing coupled with a longing for joy and for peace and for truth was about to set me on a faith journey that would ultimately take me down a significantly different path than the one that I had been traveling up to this point in my life. And what I want you to know is that is why I think Psalm 120 is such a wonderful psalm, a perfect psalm, really, to begin this mini-hymnal of the Psalms of the Ascent. Because you see, in it we encounter someone who is distressed and longing for deliverance. He's someone who has come to the realization that he is in a faraway place, surrounded by faraway people, living a faraway life. And within him, though, there is this longing. There is this desire to begin moving toward the heart of God. The opening verse of this psalm alerts us to the anguish that the psalmist felt. He uses the word distress. And that word, when it's used here in the Hebrew, is a word that is used to someone who is experiencing extreme anxiety or sorrow or pain. It's also a word that carries with it the idea of being in a narrow or confined space. It really gives you the idea that this guy's in a no-win situation with no way out. 
And he goes on to tell us why he felt that way. Verse 2, he identifies both lying lips and a deceitful tongue as the sources of his distress. Based upon this verse, many scholars have pointed out the fact that, that the psalmist was likely the victim of character assassination. He had been slandered about. His character had been defamed. To put it simply, great pain and great sorrow had been inflicted upon the psalmist by the words of others. Which is why we cannot look our children with straight faces and with integrity of heart and tell them that sticks and stones may break their bones, but words will never hurt them. It is absolutely untrue because the words of others can, can maim us for life. The psalmist evidently had experienced that. But I also think there's another way of looking at what the psalmist writes here. It's an interpretation that I find to be equally distressing. I believe that it is equally valid to understand that the psalmist is saying that he had not only been lied about, but he had been lied to. In other words, his distress can be linked not only to the deceitful and false things that had been said about him, but also to the deceitful and false things that had been said to him. I don't know about you, but there's few things that disturb me worse than to be lied to. The utterly frustrating, sickening thing about it is you operate under the assumption that you know the facts only to find out later that you didn't know what you thought you knew. Things are just the opposite of the way that they were portrayed to be. And here is the truly distressing thing when we come to grips with this is that you and I are lied to all the time. Sometimes we're lied to and we're deceived by an individual. But more pervasively and more persistently, we are lied to and deceived by the culture and the world in which we live. I've already quoted from him a couple of times this morning, but in his book entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson writes at some length about the lies that the world tells us. He talks about the lies of, of advertisers who claim to know what we need to make us happy. He talks about the lies of entertainers that promise us a cheap way to joy. He talks about the lies of politicians who pretend to instruct us in power and in morality. And boy, have we heard about those lies in recent weeks and months. He talks about the lies of religious moralists who focus solely on behavior as a means of becoming happy who tell us that we are the captains of our own fates. And he goes on and he talks about the lies of preachers who talk about life but omit the fact that apart from Christ, there is no life. And what Peterson goes on to say is that the lies that they tell us, they are impeccably factual. They contain no errors. There are no distortions of falsified data, he writes, but nevertheless, he says, they are lies all the same because they claim to tell us who we are and omit everything about our origin in God and our destiny in God. They talk about the world without telling us that God made it. They talk about our bodies without telling us that they are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And they instruct us in love without ever telling us about the God who loves us and gave himself up for us. Friends, all we have to do is look around us at the messages that are 
emanating from our television sets, to look at the, the billboards as we go up and down the highways, to listen to the radio messages that are coming from our cars, to listen to the talking heads on TV, to listen to too many of the, the, the pulpits throughout this country that are telling us the same thing. And when we look closely and we listen intently to the messages that are being communicated, we find out that we are being sold a bill of goods. We are being lied to and deceived. And what I want you to know is that leads me to the first point that I want you to see this morning on your outline. First point is this. We live in a world in which we are lied about and lied to. We live in a world in which we are lied about and we're lied to. Now, when you think about it, is it any wonder that the psalmist is distressed? To be lied about and to be lied to is depressing. It's a, it's a distressing thought. When we stop and realize the situation that we're faced with, when we, when we recognize that we are constantly being fed a false narrative, we're constantly surrounded by false advertising, even perhaps by people who, who desire to even slander us personally, then we too, like the psalmist, may begin to feel distressed. We too may feel as though we're in a no-win situation with no way out. I mean, after all, when we identify those lies and those who, who say them to us and about us, we may wonder to whom can we turn? In whom can we trust? In fact, in many cases, we might just want to throw our hands up in despair and just quit. And you get the impression that the psalmist was perilously close to that. Notice what he says down in verses 5 through 7. He says, Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar, my soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Let me ask you, have you ever been there? Have you ever been to Meshech and to Kadar? You say, I have no idea where those places are. Well, understand when the psalmist is writing here, he's writing metaphorically. It's even likely that he had never even been physically to both of those places, and he certainly had not lived in both of those places at the same time because Meshech was a, was a city that was located far to the north of Jerusalem, up around, in, in Asia Minor, up around the Caspian and the Black Seas. It was a place far removed from Israel. And Kedar was a place far to the southeast in the Arabian Desert, it was, a, it was a nomadic place where nomadic tribes had lived, and that's why he talks about the tents of Kedar. Nevertheless, it was a place far removed from Israel as well. And so Meshech and Kedar were about as far apart in the known world at that time as two places could have been. Nevertheless, they had this one thing in common. They were also far from Israel. They were far from Jerusalem, and they were inhabited by people who had no love loss and no care whatsoever about the God of Israel. They were people who were hostile to the faith of Israel. And consequently, when the psalmist says that he is living in these places, what he is saying is, is that because of the attacks that he feels coming against him and because of the lies that are being told to him, it feels like he's living in the midst of hostile barbarians. He feels like a stranger living in a strange land. Not only does he feel like a stranger, but the psalmist concludes that his, he concludes the psalms by revealing what he's also come to realize is the very thing that he's for in life, the culture in which he lives is against. 
The thing that he desires most, the culture around him desires least. Notice what he says in verse 7. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It's like he's saying, I'm operating from one set of values, but the culture in which I live is operating from a completely different set of values. And then you hear this desperation in his voice in verse 6 when he says, my soul has dwelt too long among those who hate peace. It leads me to the next point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. The circumstances we face remind us that this world is not our home, causing us to long for our home in heaven. Now what I want you to know, that's really the overarching sense that you get from the psalmist here. He's sick of the lies that are being told to him. He's sick of the hostility that he faces because of his beliefs and his values. He's sick of the misrepresentations and the slander that's directed his way. He's dwelt in a faraway land among faraway people for far too long. And that's why I said earlier that I believe this is such an appropriate psalm with which to begin this group of the Psalms of the Ascent. You see, all of our faith journeys toward the heart of God must first begin here. They must first begin by realizing that this world in which we live offers us no lasting peace, no lasting joy, no lasting hope. In fact, to embark upon a journey of faith requires us to first renounce the lies that this world tells us and to turn toward the truth, the truth that can only be found in God. And the biblical word for that is what is called repentance. To repent means literally to turn away from one thing and to face and set one's gate and direction towards something else. And when we talk about it from the biblical perspective, what we understand to repent means to say no to the world and to say yes to God. It means to stop relying on ourselves and to stop believing that the things and the stuff that this world tells us will fill the void that is in our lives will never be able to fill that void. And it means to completely and, and trust upon God and to trust in the only means that our salvation comes from and that is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is what it means when the Bible says that we are to step out in faith and to step onto the faith journey of being a disciple. Friends, when we take that step, we must recognize that it will not be long before we find ourselves at odds with the world around which we are surrounded. It will not take long for us to realize that the world lives and operates under completely separate premises and ideas and values than that which the Scriptures lays out for us. And the fact is, the more that we tempt to try to live by what the Bible says and to do what the Bible says and to live according to God's laws and His instructions for us, the more that we will find ourselves at odds with the world in which we live. And when that happens, our natural response might be to sink into a state of despair or maybe even to fight back. But I want you to notice what the psalmist does. Even though he's sick of his circumstances, even though he is distressed to his very soul, even though his testimony is, woe is me, notice that he doesn't take the fight upon himself. Notice that he does not retaliate. Instead, the first verse of this psalm tells us what he does do. It tells us what we should do. The psalmist tells us that he cried out 
to the Lord. He turned to the only one who could help him. He poured his heart out before God and laid his requests and his petitions before him. And he asked God to deliver him because God was the only one who could. He didn't try to fight fire with fire. Like I said, he didn't retaliate. Instead, he called upon the Lord. And in verses 3 and 4, what you find is that he expresses his confidence that God would ultimately defend him and do what was right. That God, the sovereign judge, would protect him and deliver him even though when he wrote and penned this psalm, that deliverance obviously had yet to actually take place. That leads me to the third and final point that I want you to see this morning. See, we must respond to the troubles that we face in this world by calling upon the Lord and trusting in His defense and deliverance. We call upon the Lord. We trust in Him. We trust that He will be our defender. He will be our deliverer. Friends, as I said, this is a somber psalm. It's not a happy scenario that this psalmist describes, which is why I believe it makes it so real for you and for me. You see, each of us, if we're honest, we've struggled with the same sort of issues that this psalmist struggled with. We know what it's like to be distressed. We know what it's like to be lied about. We know what it's like to be disappointed in others. We know what it's like to be spoken evil of. We know what it's like to be duped by the culture in which we live. We know what it's like to feel like a stranger in a strange land. Friends, even though this is a somber psalm, it nevertheless is hopeful. You see, it announces to us that God is the solution to the trouble that we face. The psalmist says that when he cried out to the Lord, that the Lord heard him. The Lord didn't turn a deaf ear to him. Friend, that is what we must do as well. We must turn our hearts to him and cry out to him in our distress because he and he alone can comfort us. He and he alone can provide us with lasting joy and hope. And what this psalm tells us is that on the long road to discipleship, the long journey toward the heart of God always begins with the first step. It starts by turning and stepping away from the lies and pointing our face toward God. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. As lied about and lied to pilgrims living in an antagonistic world, far from home and in great distress, We must turn to God in prayer and trust His sovereign judgment and protection. Surprisingly enough, 1993 ended and 1994 started. And circumstantially in my life, very few things had changed. But God had begun to do some work in my life spiritually. Things were changing. There had been an awakening. There was a hunger within me. God was calling me to a a deeper walk with Him, to a closer fellowship with Him, and a deeper understanding of His Word and what He wanted me to do with my life. By the time Easter rolled around of 1994, I had surrendered my life to the Lord to become a preacher of the gospel. By the fall of that year, I had packed up what little I owned, sold my sports car, 
moved to Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee, and began my college degree studying Bible as a 25-year-old freshman. I had no idea exactly where God was going to take me, had no idea where the path would lead, but I tell you what, I was no longer aimless. I had begun my faith journey toward the heart of God. That was 22 years ago. And I can say with certainty this, that the road has not always been easy and it's not always been smooth. And I've tripped and fallen a number of times as I've stumbled down that road at times. I still battle with the false narratives that the world tries to sell me. There's still times when I'm disappointed by the actions of others. There's even more times in my life when I'm disappointed by my own actions in the way that I disappoint others. Truth is, the more that I see happening around me in the world in which we live and the more that I learn about myself from these scriptures and the more that I learn about what God has promised to do in me and through me, the more that I become convinced that I am ready for the home that God has prepared for me. And that's why, that's why I'm so passionate about communicating the gospel to those who have never heard it and to those who have turned a deaf ear to it. Because brothers and sisters, let me say this to you this morning is that there is no place for you to begin except by coming to the realization that this world offers you nothing that will last. But God in His great mercy and His great love toward you sent His one and only Son to die in the place of sinners so that those who will by faith repent of their sins and turn from them and confess Him as Jesus, confess Him as Lord, and will bow their knee before Him. God has promised that if you will cry out to me in your distress, I will hear you, and I will in no wise cast you out, but I will save you from your sins, and I will put your feet on a road that then begins the ascent toward home. And I don't know where you are this morning. Perhaps today is the day you finally put your foot in the ground and you turn, and you begin to march the different road. Perhaps today is that day for you. If it is, understand this, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Maybe you say, I've been on that road before. I know God's my Father, but you just don't know where the road has taken me. Yes, I do. Because I've been there. I too have wakened in the pig pen far from my father's house. But the Bible also says this, if you will cry out in your distress, he will hear you and he will be there to receive you with open arms. I don't know what your road is like and I don't know where you are on it. I do know this, the Psalms of the Ascent call us to lock arms together with other pilgrims as we make our way to the very heart of God. And that is my invitation to you this morning as well. Would you bow with me in prayer?